Thank you for everybody who's joining us live. My apologies for our somewhat of a late start. I've been working on this class for days, actually weeks. And if I didn't have to teach the class now, I'd still be working on it <laughs> because there's just um, so much information. Anyway, I hope that you will all benefit from and be uplifted by the Torah we study today. I want to begin by mentioning that today's class is being dedicated to the memory and Aliyah Tanashama of Sophie and Albert Nelu Cohen, Sora Bas Yisrael, Navram Yona, Ben Nachum HaKohen, Zechornum Levracha. May their memories have an Aliyah and may their families only know of Simchas, of good health and of happiness. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the notion of holiness and healing. The Torah is holy, and it has medicinal advice in it. Is that meaningful? Is, uh, are these sacred texts something that should speak to us in today's day and age? Are they rendered moot? Can Torah ever actually become irrelevant? These are many of the important questions that people might ask. And I guess we'll take it from the top. In the actual Chumash itself, in the actual Torah itself, there is no medicinal advice per se. The Torah does say, Verapa yirape. That's a famous verse that's found in Parshas Mishpatim, and it means, the doctor shall surely heal. And the Gemara tells us, Mikan nitan reshus From here we can derive that one is permitted to heal somebody. There is a wrong-headed notion that if God made somebody sick, well, clearly God wants them to be sick. And the Talmud rejects that and says, if somebody loses an item, do you say, well, they lost the item? Or is it your mitzvah to restore the lost item to them? And the Gemara clearly states that just as it is a mitzvah to restore a lost item, something of somebody's monetary possession, how much more so it is a sacred duty to restore somebody's health and well-being. The Gemara tells us that this is something that we may do, in fact, something we are obligated to and must do. In the actual Pentateuch, in the scripture, we hear of Moshe Rabbeinu creating a nechushtan, a copper serpent, as it will, which was designed to make people remember their creator. And we emphasize the notion that healing comes from Hashem, who is called Roife Cholbasar Umaflilasis. God is the healer of all flesh, and ultimately, all wondrous things are vested in the hands of the Creator. And yet, we, human beings, can be God's partners in bringing healing. So the first time healing shows up in Torah text, per se, is in the Mishnah. Now, of course, you may ask me, how would healing show up in the Mishnah? Does the Mishnah have a tractate called Refua? The answer is no, it doesn't. The Mishnah, strictly speaking, is about case and halacha. Instances of things or circumstances or situations that might arise, and then the halachic ruling of how we should comport ourselves in order to fulfill Hashem's Torah and its holy mitzvot. So within that framework, the notion of healing does show up. And I will share with you but two examples in the Mishnah. The first I'll share with you is a Mishnah in Mesechet Yoma. The tractate deals with the holiest day of the year that we, the Jewish people, are ordained 
to observe as Yom Kippur. We do not eat. We proscribe any food or drink during the course of this day. So the Mishnah in Mesechet Yoma, in chapter 8, Mishnah 6, talks about the possibilities of a person who might have to eat on Yom Kippur. In fact, in fact the possibility of somebody who might have to eat in great haste. And this is what the Mishnah says, I will quote to you. A person who is seized with a condition, a malady called bulmus. Now, bulmus is considered to be an extremely dangerous illness. It results from extreme hunger. It causes paleness, according to some of the commentaries. And, as Rashi tells us, it weakens the patient's vision. So when a person who is seized with this illness called bulmus can't see, we're in big trouble. We have to act with tremendous haste. So the Mishnah says, And we may give him, in fact, we must give him to eat, even forbidden foods, ad until literally his eyes are illuminated, proverbially speaking, his vision is restored. So in other words, the litmus test of the danger of bulmus, which needs to be right away dealt with, we don't have time to go and get kosher food, is this notion that as long as vision is restored, we have time in our hands. If vision is not restored, the person's life is in danger, and keeping Torah and its mitzvot are very important, but not more important than staying alive. That mitzvah trumps even the observance of Shabbat and Yom Kippur. So staying alive, v'chaibahem, the Torah tells us, you must live with them. And as such, we do not look for kosher food, but immediately, this is a critical set of circumstances, we have to give the person to eat right away. All right, so the Mishnah mentions an illness. There's a discussion as to what exactly this illness might be, or if we're even familiar with it today. But at any rate, that's the ruling of the Mishnah. But since the Mishnah has now talked about a ruling that permits the consumption of non-kosher food, so the Mishnah says, The Mishnah tells us about a person who might have been bitten by a rabid animal. So a dog with rabies who bit somebody would actually pose an immediate danger to the patient. So just as when it comes to vulmus, we're allowed to feed the patient non-kosher food if kosher food isn't available. The Mishnah says, despite the fact that we can feed the patient non-kosher food, if no other food's available because their life is in danger, being bitten by a mad dog does not permit us, does not allow us to give some of the liver lobe to the patient to eat. Reb Masya ben Chodosh, he argues, and he is mater, he permits it. So what's really going on here is, although the ancient doctors considered this to be a cure, their opinion is not significant enough to permit the transgressing of a prohibition of eating non-kosher food since this is not a proven remedy. So the Mishnah is mentioning a remedy and we have a major Torah opinion that says even if it's a non-proven remedy, we should take every chance possible and violate the halacha. And the Mishnah says no. Because it's not a proven remedy, because it's just an urban legend or something that people subscribe to, but we don't have it scientifically proven, we are not permitted to override the clear dictate of the Torah. Okay, very interesting. So the Mishnah is mentioning an ancient remedy, and actually the Mishnah is uh, kind of dismissing it and saying whether it's true or not, we don't know. And precisely because we have no scientific proof 
it's not been observed in a carefully controlled environment to actually bring healing, we're not permitted to eat from the dog's liver. So we have a mention of refuah, a mention of ancient healing, an ancient healing practice, which the, which the Mishnah does not ascribe any kind of certainty to, although it mentions it, although there was a Torah opinion that said we can nonetheless allow the overriding of halacha, the halacha is not like that. Another example of something which gets a little more technical is found in Masechet Shabbat. Now, as you know, Shabbat requires a very rigorous set of observances so that it might be kept properly. There are 39 forms of work. One of those forms of work is the grinding of grown things. Things, organic materials may not be ground on Shabbat. So because we may not grind things on Shabbat and because the observance of Shabbat is so intricate and so precise and so exact and really doing it is so demanding, our sages created numerous fences to the observance of Shabbat, amongst them the prohibition of ingesting various medicines because until very, very recently, people using herbs for medication would pound or grind the medication so as to make it palatable. And this uh, mortar and pestle, which is still the sign uh, outside many, many a drugstore, including Shoppers Drug Mart right here in Canada, that was something that was in use a mere century ago. In fact, my parents have in their home an old mortar and pestle that we received from my, my mother's grandmother who brought it over from the old country as she was escaping from the Nazis in the last boat to leave. And that was something every normal house had. Like, I guess everybody has a microwave or a refrigerator today, a coffee maker. Once upon a time, everybody had the ability to grind the medicinal ingredients that you would pick up in its organic fashion. So the, the, the Mishnah, Mesechet Shabbat, in chapter 14, deals with the notion of some things that might be eaten for medicinal purposes, but they could be construed as normal consumption as well. The Mishnah comes along and tells us in Mishnah 3 of that chapter, in Eichlin, Ezeivin Bishabbas. Ezeivin are usually translated as hyssops, which is a low-lying brush. The, the commentaries in the Mishnah seem to believe that this is called a Greek hyssop. Now, the Mishnah is discussing medicinal remedies, which, as we mentioned, are prohibited on Shabbat. Now, I did just tell you a moment ago, you can eat on Yom Kippur and eat on Shabbat, but that's when the illness threatens life. If it is only an illness where a person is suffering from an ailment and is in profound discomfort, but his or her life is not in danger, we are not permitted to override Shabbat to be more comfortable. So the Mishnah comes along and says, you can't eat these Greek hyssops on Shabbos. Why not? Normal people don't eat things like that. Why do people eat things like that? For medicinal purposes. And precisely because medicinal remedies are not permitted on Shabbat, lest we come to grind or crush, therefore something which is not eaten in a normal time could not be eaten on Shabbat, even though you would eat it in a non-medicinal way, say, not having ground or pounded it. One may eat what's translated as maiden hair. One may drink what is translated as liverwort. Now, exactly what this is, I don't know, but uh, the commentaries tell us that maiden hair is a type of edible plant which serves as a remedy for worms in the liver. And liverwort is a type of plant that's soaked in water and then it is drunk as a remedy for one who has drunk 
something that might have included within it the venom of a scorpion or a snake. So if you have exposed water that could have been contaminated and now you're afraid you might have absorbed some kind of toxic material, then you drink this liverwort water and it serves as an antidote. So the Gemara Mishta says you can drink that because healthy people drink it also. So maybe it's medicinal, but people will do this even for non-medicinal purposes. And the Mishnah goes on to say that in all different foods that a person can eat, a person suffering from various maladies can eat them on Shabbat, even if his intention is for the purposes of a remedy. And the Gemara talks about something, Mishnah talks about palm water, and there's a discussion what this means, and it seems to deal with an upset stomach, a diarrhea, it becomes a panacea for cleansing the bowels. We hear about a cup of roots, which seems to be made of ground roots and spices, and they are a remedy for jaundice or some kind of blood poisoning. Others maintain that the word ikarim comes to the terminology of sterility. At any rate, the Mishnah talks about these various different kinds of herbs and discusses whether, whether, whether one may or may not eat or drink them on Shabbat. And the distinction would be if people typically eat or drink this or not. Now, having said all of this, the Mishnah itself does not spell out what is or isn't medicinal or recognize whether these medicines are or aren't effective. I would tell you for the Mishnah itself, we have absolutely no medicinal advice. The Mishnah would be, merely be commenting on the thing that people might take as medicine and might also take as normative food. And the Mishnah draws a contrast between things which are ingested only for medicinal purposes, not permitted, and things which are permitted specifically for medicinal purposes and sometimes eaten normatively where that would be permitted even if your intention was medicinal. Okay, fine, very nice. So we have no medicine in the Mishnah itself and we have no reason to think that the Mishnah provides us with any kind of particular healing. However, when we get to the Gemara, oh, here things change. Once again, we have multiple sources in the Gemara. The primary sources are found in Mesechet Gitten on page 68, the bottom of side B onto page 69. And there is also a long piece of Gemara in Mesechet Shabbat on pages 109 onto page 110. Uh, for a variety of reasons, the, I'm going to share with you some of the roster of highly effective medicines that the Talmud, that the Gemara documents in its conversation about certain details in the Mishnah. And I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you only two. Only two because these are conditions that we're familiar with today. And it seems pretty tantalizing. Well, let's see. So the Gemara comes along at Daf Samaches, Samad Beis on the bottom. And the Gemara says that in the beginning of this chapter, which is the seventh chapter of Mesechet Gitten, there's a discussion of various remedies. And so the Gemara now begins the discussion of remedies and medicines from the head down. The first thing the Gemara addresses is Doma Deresha. Doma Deresha literally translates as blood in the head. Blood in the head sounds to some like it might be a form of a minor stroke or a hemorrhaging. Um, Rashi seems to feel that this is not about some life-threatening condition like that, but rather, Dhamma would be the notion of a headache 
induced by high blood pressure. So the blood is pumping heart too quickly, and this causes a headache. And it's called domoderatia because it's produced, or the result of a perfusion of the heart pumping blood, but the headache is felt in the head. So what do you do? You got this pounding headache, this crazy headache. So the Gemara says, here's what you do. Lese shurvina uvina v'asadara. Pardon me. Lese shurvina uvina v'zesa. You bring boxwood, and boxwood is a tree which is related to cedar. And you bring a willow, and you bring fresh myrtle. And then asa dara, you bring some, um, you bring um, poplar and cloves, and you boil all this vilishlikinhu bahadi hadadi. And then you have to boil them all together. And then after you boil the boxwood, the willow, the fresh myrtle, the olive, the poplar, and the cloves, and something called yavla, which you don't, I don't know what it is. According to, to some, it's an herb, but we're not sure what the, that, that herb is. And then you boil them together. And then, velintoil tolos mea kase ahogisa Pour 300 cups of this mixture on one side of your head. Vetolos mea kase ahogisa deresha. Pour 300 cups on the other side of your head. There you go. And the headache will be gone. Well, if this doesn't work, here's an alternative remedy. The Elav, the Gemara says, if, that, if not that, then Then you have to bring a white rose whose leaves all stand in one row. In other words, that the leaves are on one side of the stem. I've never even seen such a rose. Forget about nowhere to find it, but anyway. And then you have to boil it. Then pour 60 cups of the resulting liquid on that side of the head and you'll be fine. So you pour 60 cups on this side of the head, 60 cups on the other side of the head, and then your high blood pressure headache will dissipate. The Mishnah Gemara now goes on to introduce another kind of head ailment. Litzlichta. Litzlichta, Rashi says, that's Ke'ev Chatzi Harish. First one was a full headache. This is only a half a headache. So the half a headache, we think, is a migraine. And that's because the word migraine, that people never suffer from, in Latin is a word that comes from Latin, which was hermicranium. And hermicranium means half of the head. So migraines usually are on the front of the head or the back of the head, but they're not the whole head. So how do you heal a migraine headache? Okay, the Gemara says, Leite Tarnagoyla Vora. You bring a wild cock. And you slaughter it with a sharpened zuz, which is a silver coin, a pure silver coin. And then, you do this over the side of the head that aches, and you do that in order. So when you do that in order, so that the blood will trickle over that side of the head. And then, but you have to be careful. You have to be aware that the blood should not blind one's eyes. So make sure you slaughter the cock with that silver coin and let the blood drip on your head, but don't get it in your eyes. Then, 
You can hang the slaughtered cock on the doorpost of the patient's home. And the chiayef chayef bey. When he enters the house, he brushes against his dead chicken. Vichinofik, and when he leaves, chayef bey, he brushes against the dead chicken. And presto, your migraine headaches will be healed. The Gemara goes on then to talk about cataracts and partial blindness, night blindness, daytime blindness. We have remedies for nosebleeds and remedies for oral cavities. And the list goes on what happens when we have blood poisoning and we have issues with the lungs and the liver. So should we do this? Sounds a little exotic, but this is Gemara. This is Torah. When we study Torah, we make a bracha, a Gemara falls on the floor, we reverently kiss it. This is Gemara. This is Torah. Should we be implementing these remedies? Should we be scouring the Talmud for advice or remedies against infection and maybe employ them to battle or combat the effects of today's pandemic? It's a fair question. Well, let's see what our sages said. But before we see what our sages said as to whether or not we should follow this advice, the first thing we will talk about is, why is it in the Gemara altogether? Is, is this a mitzvah to do? And if it's a mitzvah, what's the question? So let me introduce you to the commentary of the Maharsha. The Maharsha is a 16th century commentator on the Talmud. There is no student of Talmud with any sense of self-respect who has not studied the Maharsha copiously. The Maharsha is considered to be an invaluable aid to Talmud study, especially if you plan to study it with the commentaries of Tosfos, Rashi and Tosfos, which are the French commentators on the Talmud from the 14th and 15th centuries. Now, the Maharsha wrote Chedushi Halachis, Navale in Halacha. He also authored something called Chedushi Agodis, Navale in the, well, the, the more kind of stories of the Gemara and the narratives of the Gemara which are not framed in halachic terminology. And it's printed in the back of every good Gemara and they have actually different prints. One is in a larger print, one is in a smaller print. The Chedushi Agodis, the Navale on Agadic areas is in the smaller print. Let me share with you the words of the Maharsha, because I think this is key and critical to us understanding the words of the Talmud as we begin to address this very important question of whether or not we're ignoring some of the advice that might really help us right here, right now. So the Gemara Mesech is Gitten, Daf Samaches, Samad Beis, introduces all these various remedies. And at the very final entry of the Maharsha of page 68b, the Marsha says the following, and I will read and translate. Yes, Lishoel, we might well ask the question, with all of these remedies that are mentioned in our chapter of Gemara, as well as other chapters, and he references other sources, other places, we might ask the question, why did the final editors of the Talmud, who redacted, the Talmud Bavli as we have it today, why did they include this? Ha'amrinon, 
So you're thinking the question is why they include stuff which we don't understand or make sense. No, that's not the question. The Marsha has a very strong question from a statement which is made in the end of the first chapter of Mesechet Brachot, which is the first tractate of the Talmud. Over there, the Gemara says on the words Vahatoiv Be'inecha Asisi, that the words that you did what was good, that the, what was good in Hashem's eyes was Shagonaz Chizkiyohu Sefer Horafus, that Chizkiyohu Hezakiah, the Judean king, who made many reforms for the Jewish people during the latter period of the first temple era, made the fateful choice to hide the famous Book of Healing, a Book of Healing from antiquity, Book of Healing, ancient Book of Torah healings. And the reason that Chizkiyo HaMelech decided to get rid of this book, which presumably helped many people find healing and wellness, is Kidei so that when people got sick, they simply said, where's the good book? Where's the big book of healing? And once we get to the big book of healing, we don't need anything else. And they stopped praying. They stopped raising their eyes heavenward. And when Chizkiyo HaMelech did this, was a very controversial move because there was many people who felt that healing had been taken from them. But the sages praised him for this. And why did they do this? They did this because they praised him because Chizkiyoh HaMelech did it with the purest of intentions because people stopped thinking that healing is in the hands of God and relied on the advice, the prescriptions that were written in this book. V'yeshli Yashiv. So the Ramasha seems to be saying that here the Talmud would create the same thing. If the Talmud gives us all these magic elixirs, and the Talmud tells us the secrets of being able to overcome illness, and after all illness comes from Hashem, what a Yid, what a, a Torah Jew is really supposed to do is raise his eyes heavenward and pray to Hashem for healing. Now we'll just look in the Gemara. So the Masha says, V'yeshli Yashiv, we can easily reconcile the seeming discrepancy between the statement of the Talmud which is found in Mesechet Brachot and between the advice that the Talmud provides here in Mesechet Gittin and elsewhere. The Vada'i Nitein Rishul Sladapais, as I mentioned in the outset of today's presentation, it goes without saying that Torah provides permission. In fact, it's a responsibility to bring about healing if you can. The Leda Rifuais, it is permissible for us to be privy and to know all different methodologies of healing. Ella, the thing is, you cannot make it something which is available for everybody. Because people lack virtue. So non-virtuous people will believe in the medicine instead of believing in God. They won't believe in God. Only in these medicinal prescriptions. This is the reason that it was permissible for the rabbis in the Talmud to write this down. But he says there's another element over here. So why do you have to write it? Let it be passed from person to person. Let this be kept within a tight circle of virtuous people. Those people will provide healing when it's necessary. And they'll also provide spiritual guidance, reminding people not only to rely on the medicine, but to raise their eyes heavenward 
and to acknowledge the that Hashem is the healer of all flesh. So the Marsha says, as we know, in general, the oral traditions of Torah are not supposed to be written down. Why were they written down? Because forgetfulness became a part of life as time went on. And this is the reason that it was permitted to write down even the actual Torah itself, which wasn't once written down. We didn't have a body of Mishnah or oral Torah or rulings. That was all passed orally from generation to generation. This is the reason that it was permissible for them. And even though anybody might read the Gemara today, if it wouldn't have written it down, it would have become forgotten. And then, then it would be lost forever. And as such, it had been passed down in Chizkiyo's times orally. And now, in the Gemara's times, we have no choice but to write it. And as a result of this, you'll see that the Talmud is not lacking, it has all wisdoms. Even for all illness, you can find healings and you can find wellness. And so the mockers, the scoffers will not say about the rabbis of the Talmud that they were ignorant of medicine. They were not ignorant of medicine and they knew medicine as well. All right, so the Marshal seems to very strongly endorse these ideas and he says this is an important part of Torah and this is medicine and this is included and as such, something that we should take seriously. Now, how might this work? How, how, how do these medications work? Is this uh, what we would call soothsaying? Is this magic? So, in order to help you understand how we view the notion of the way these medications might work, I want to introduce you to a tshuva, a halachic responsa that was authored by the Rashba, the Sephardic Spanish sage whose name was Shlomo ben Avram ben Aderet. He lived in the 13th century and he was a rabbi in Barcelona for nearly or maybe even more than 50 years. Now some say he was a, a, a doctor, although I don't know if that's corroborated. It seems he was certainly a banker and a very wealthy individual. We have today eight volumes of his responsa, and it is said that a good amount, if not nearly half of the responsa of his manuscripts were actually lost. And he had a yeshiva and he taught Torah, a remarkable person. So the Rajba, in his chuvis, in volume one, this is response number 413, deals with the notion of superstition, of soothsaying, black magic, and whether or not we are permitted to use these seeming magic potions that are found in the Talmud. So I'm, I'm sharing with you a snippet of a very long and sophisticated responsa authored by this great Rishon, this great medieval scholar. He says that none of the conversation of black magic and soothsaying in any way applies to the medical methodologies introduced in the Talmud. And he says, this is the way to view the remedies that the rabbi spoke of. It was by divine grace at the beginning of creation 
God introduced to this world certain things which would have a chemical composition that could restore wellness. Things that could stir, serve as restoration from illness and restoration of good health. That if things would happen, like illness, or other forms of things which would inhibit people's nature, interrupt people's healthy nature, so then these properties would be available to restore them to their normal balance, to the normal health. Hashem placed these powers, if you will, or this ability in these natural remedies. And this is known, he says, to people who are expert in medicine. And it's not a logical thing. It's not something which necessarily you come to a logical conclusion. Like, it's a good idea not to overeat. That's a logical thing. This is not a logical thing. This is something which has their propensities or properties within certain herbs or within certain organic materials or certain animals that have the ability to restore balance and bring back health. And therefore the Rashba says, It is fully permissible for us to involve ourselves in the notion of healing. One should always have their eyes and heart heavenward. And you should know that real healing ultimately comes from Hashem. But these methodologies work. He says that the notion of what we call a segula, a propition, he says it's all nature. It's a natural thing that God endowed in creation. And he says this is true about the things which the Talmud talks about. And it's true about various herbs or drugs or, 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 or compounds that people might discover even today. Rabbeinu Nissen, the Ran, who also lived in the 13th century, he was born only 10 years before the Rashba passed away. Um, born in Barcelona. as a little boy at the time of the Rashba. And uh, he was a physician. And he had a very, very powerful knowledge of astronomy as well. And he was one of the greatest rabbis of his time. He was the Dayan, he was the judge, and a teacher for the Jewish community in Barcelona. Now, the Ran authored Chidushim Navale on the Gemara, on Shas. And there are nine volumes of that printed. But he also printed a volume of sermons. Presumably sermons that he delivered, or at least they were a composite of various sermons that he delivered. And the Ran, in his twelfth sermon, which is entitled Ki Yipole, when things are beyond your knowledge, or beyond what you know. And he deals with much of the soothsaying material that the Rashba talks about. And he says, when it comes to medicine, you need to understand that nature and the propensity or the healing properties, which in the Ram's time was called magic, he said, it's not magic. This, the nature is that certain things have certain chemical effects. He calls it a segula. The segula, that such and such is a propition for inducing such and such. He says, who poil bateva? That's simply a part of nature. And like the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, nature is things that we do or things that happen, reactions, chemical reactions that we know to be factual without necessarily understanding why. We don't know why the bark of a tree, incidentally, thins the blood 
and is a very effective way of dealing with headaches. We call that aspirin today, by the way. We don't know why that's the case, but it's the case. He says, Hapoyel hasguli, these, in a sense, natural effectuations are not logical. They're not something that's a rational thing. It makes sense that this herb should inhibit such and such a condition. No, he says, not, not, it's not logical. But at the same time, it's something which Hashem ordains. He says, He says, there is natural things which make sense. A person could come to the conclusion that A and B equals C. And then he says, there is an enormous amount of scientific inquiry that is not based on logic, but on matter-of-fact observation. And he says, they're not intrinsically different. Whether something is logical, and therefore you come to the conclusion that such and such might help for a certain particular set of circumstances, or whether something's been observed to make this kind of effect, he said the sum total, the conclusion, is not different from one another. There's no reason to separate nature in the, in the natural or rational way as in nature from propensities that certain things have. And the, the, the Ran uses the example, he says, fire naturally will consume. It incinerates and burns. The, is there a logical reason for that? I mean, today we do have a, a logical scientific understanding of what happens when you release electrons, which excite other electrons, and the release of electrons collapses or causes a collapse of the subatomic structure. At least that's the way I understand it, which I've been told is a very rudimentary, elementary understanding of fire and probably not accurate fully. But at any rate, the point is, yesh seva it has, fire has within it na its nature, its nature is to consume and burn. So nobody will say, well, I don't understand why fire should burn. Why should the fire burn X, Y, and Z? Because it does. You want to call it magic? <laughs> if that makes you feel good, says the Ran, but it's nature. Ran says, tell me, when you have magnetic stone, well, certain properties, certain things which naturally have a pull to them, you call it magic? It's its nature. There's something called an Evan HaMashiach. In B'mshichas Evan, he says, HaMashiachas Barzal, when certain stone or certain things cause a magnetic pull to iron. He says, it's not magic. That its nature is that there is a pull, a magnetic pull. And he says the same thing is true with what we would call in today's day and age gravity or the notion of things which would fall with increasing velocity because of weight. He says the gravitational pull is nature. Simple as that. And because there would be a change in velocity because of gravitational pull, this is not magic. He says it's simply a fact, a fact of nature. And observing facts of nature can lead us to conclusions or having received information about such facts lead us to those natural conclusions that it seems pretty clear that this is how we would view the Talmudic remedies as things that are endowed with a natural predisposition to somehow heal particular conditions. So I don't know, there's something in boxwood and cedar and willow and, and, and olive that when these things are all going to be mixed together, it causes a synergy which somehow, I suppose when poured repetitiously over the headache caused by high blood pressure, does something to elicit a chemical reaction and maybe either slows down the blood pressure or alleviates the headache. What's wrong with that? Okay, great. So we should be scouring the Talmud and finding these, these um, finding these, these remedies. 
and we should figure out how to solve our problems today. Right? Well, no. Wrong. Why is that wrong? Ah. So let me now introduce you to a number of texts in which rabbis dealt with exactly this question. Exactly this question. This question now is, should we in fact use these Talmudic remedies since they seem to be merely a copious list of the medical facts, should we be using them to try and heal ourselves today? The following teaching is excerpted from a letter which we believe was authored by Rav Shirida Goen. We're talking now the 10th century. Rav Shirida Goen was the head of the famous yeshiva of Pompadisa. He lived in the 10th century. His father was Rav Hanina or Rav Hananya, who was the head of that yeshiva. His grandfather was one of the Gaonim, known as to Zrubavel, the son of Shaltiel, who was the son of King Yechonia, the last king of Judea, who was exiled. Nebuchadnezzar dethroned and then sent him off, carted him off to Babel in chains. Now, Rav Shrira Goyen, being a direct descendant of the family of David Melech, was seen as rabbinic royalty. He even had a a seal, which included the imagery of a, of, a, of a lion, the tribe of Yehuda. And at a certain point when he became the head of the yeshiva in Pompadisa, he retired from his Gaon duties as leading the Jewish people. He transferred those to Rav Hai Goen, one of the most famous Gaonim, his son. He made him the Goen, and he instead dealt with the affairs of the yeshiva and spent his life, the rest of his life, responding to halachic questions posed from really, Jewry, living across the Iberian Peninsula and beyond, the entire Mediterranean basin. Now, several decades ago, all of the different letters of the Geonim, which are primarily responsa, they didn't, they, they, there was very little Geonic commentary in the Talmud, they do have some, but much of it was halachic responsa, into something called Chuvas HaGeonim. And this Chuva shows up in the 20-plus uh, set of volumes of Chuvas HaGeonim, it's Tshuva number 376, and Mesechet Gitten. And Rav Shirira is responding to a question as, Udesha'altain lemichtev l'chayin hani asu asa demi sha'achzei kurdikum. Miravashmuel. You're asking about these various ailments and remedies that are talked about in the Talmud in Mesechet Gitten, page 68. May you use them. Rav Shira going writes, 10th century. We must say that the rabbis were not physicians. They were merely recording the remedies and the medicinal practices they saw in their time. And so they recorded this. They are not actually mitzvot or instructions or commandments that we must follow. Hilkach, because this is the case, if there were mitzvahs, there's no question. Mitzvah is a mitzvah. How do mitzvahs work? Why do mitzvahs work? That's not my business. That's not your business. My business is, and your business is to simply follow them. However, since we are talking here not about mitzvot, but about observable phenomena of its time, 
We should not rely on these remedies. We should not simply accept that knowledge without first doing copious tests and checking and making sure that it's scientifically proven. Until we hear with certainty from scientists of the day, from the expert physicians of our time, that this works. And otherwise, the Leike, the Lacey, Nafshili, the Sakana, we know with certainty that not only this would not be a healing thing, but it wouldn't actually put us into more danger. So, Nafshida does not dismiss these things. He says, number one, they are not part of the oral tradition in the sense that we have to follow what it says. The rabbis told us what they saw. So, if we can prove its efficacy, great. He says, but until we do so, it would be perhaps unwise to follow this advice because it might actually put us into a greater danger. Now, Rav Shrida does not explain how or why things might have changed. He doesn't really give us any kind of explanation into what the rabbis of the Talmud were or were in thinking. He merely matter-of-factly states that it's probably not a good idea to follow this advice. It's not a mitzvah. He says that's the distinction he draws. This is not a commandment. This is not a halacha. This is the rabbis observing things in their time. If it works, then you should do it. Otherwise, it might actually be even more dangerous. That's what the Reb Shrida says from the Tshuva Sagainim. There is a, a sefer that was written by Reb Avraham. Ben Harambam, Reb Avraham, the Rambam's son, replaced his father at a very young age. I think he was only 19 years old when his father passed. Reb Avraham was a, a, a born when his father was 51. And of course, his father passed away when he was 69. Avraham was only 19 years old and he was recognized as the greatest scholar of his community. He succeeded his father as the Nagid which was the spiritual leader, the head of the Egyptian Jews. And he also was appointed to the office of court physician at the age of only 18 years old. Rabbi Avram and Arambam taught Torah in the yeshiva that his father had established and continued to serve as the rabbi of that community and the Torah leader of that community, although he did not have the international renown and reverence that his father had garnered. But nonetheless, very, very important Torah scholar from the late 12th, primarily 13th century. So in his article on the teachings of our sages, the expositions of our sages, which is called Maimer al-Droshes Chazal, Rabbi Avram, the son of the Rambam, himself a physician, the son of a world-renowned celebrated physician, says that you see about the words of our sages, the things which did not come to conclusions as a result of careful analysis and cross-examination and rationality. So then, we won't listen to it. We accept that which was roundly and carefully cross-examined. And he uses this extraordinary euphemism. He says, by, by, by God, he says, If Joshua, the son of Nun, successor of Moshe Rabbeinu, were to have told us things that we did not carefully examine, 
I don't necessarily accept it. Even though he's a Navi, he's a prophet. But if he's not saying words of prophecy, if he's coming to you with a teaching, we have the right and responsibility to cross-examine that and to analyze it. Since he would not be able to demonstrate this to us in a rational and cogent way, so therefore we don't accept it. The things which the student can now follow the experiments, can now follow the rhyme and the reason, and the careful, careful cross-examination to be able to ascertain the veracity and validity. And he says, I don't move from this. I have nothing more to respond. We find statements which are not demonstrably proven. In no point in the Talmud is there a suggestion of things having been examined. And therefore, he says, we do not necessarily accept them. And he notes a number of things in the Talmud. And he says... We are not responsible to accept these things. We are not responsible to accept these things that our sages said that are not demonstrably proven to be true. And when it comes to health and wellness, he says, we follow advice which is logical, which we can prove. Like, for example, my father's advice, he says, not to eat when you're not hungry. Not to drink when you're not thirsty, and to make sure that the food is properly digested, and never to restrain yourself from emptying one's bowels. So Rabavram is pretty clear in saying that he did not believe that we necessarily had to accept these words of the Talmud at face value. Let me take you now to the words of the Maharshal. The Maharshal is a sage who lives in Poland. He lives, um, he lives in the 16th century. He studies Torah together with the Ramah, the co-author of what we call today the Shulchan Aruch. And he studied under Reb Shalom Shachna. He was um, probably one of the most influential rabbinic figures in all of Europe in the 16th century. And he wrote a very important work on the Talmud, which includes in it tremendous amount of, of um, commentary and halacha. So it's called Yam Shal Shlomo, the Sea of Solomon, his name is Rabbi Shlomo Luria. And he deals in Mesechet Gitten, in the eighth chapter, with exactly the subject at hand. And he says, Even though there is a ban by the earlier sages, that we should not rely on the various remedies that are suggested in the Talmud. And he says that the reason is so that we would not cast aspersion on the words of our sages. And if somebody were to do what the sages advised and it didn't work, you cast aspersion on their, on, on their words. He says, we don't know. Here, Mahashal is telling us something very interesting, which I will soon show you, shows up in the Tosfos as well, already earlier than the Mahashal, but here it's being said in the framework of Halacha. 
Here he says there's been a shift of place. He seems to indicate that geography has everything to do with the impact of a particular chemical or nature. And he says that's number one. A change in geography means a change in the impact of nature. Number two, there's the kol shikain, how much more so, bizmanim shadeiris poichasin vahilchen. Certainly so in a time when generations are being diminished. Weakness has been injected into the, uh, the li- human life as we have it today. He says, If they were strong as giants, a euphemism obviously, we are like gnats or mosquitoes. So he says, nonetheless, and then he says, a lot of the things that they spoke about, about para- the paranormal called ruches or spirits, he says, nonetheless, he says, if the Talmud says something is dangerous, it's not a bad idea to stay away from it. Stay away from it. Why take chances? In other words, the remedies in the Talmud, we are banned from following because we shouldn't cast aspersion on their words. It doesn't really explain why the words might not be correct, but I will come to that in a moment. But he says... He says, although there has been a shift of geography, he's living in Poland or Russia, shift of geography, major shift in the climate that people are living in, and because there's a shift in geography, they're eating different kind of food, living under different kind of air pressure and climate. In, in the Talmud is written in Babylon, where there's hot weather most of the time, and he's living in Poland, where there's cold weather for a good portion of the time. So years and years of living under these kind of climates makes a change. The soil is different, so the geography is different. And he says, we in general are in a weakened state. So our, our metabolisms are different, our, our nature is different, and as such, we cannot, with any stretch of imagination, assume that nature will work in the same way it did then, today. But he says, if the Talmud suggests things are dangerous, it's a good idea to stay away from it. So we have the Yamsha Shlomo, who is kind of alluding to the words of the Gaonim, alluding to the words of Rambavram and Rambam, but yet saying that if we're told that certain things are dangerous, it's a good idea to avoid this. Now, before the Yamsha Shlomo, the Maharil, who lives some 200 years, the 14th century sage, upon whom most of halachic I would say, a framework of the Ashkenaz world ultimately is based in the Sefer Maharil, which in, 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 in something called Likutim, collections, which we didn't have this, always, it wasn't always readily available. Rabbi Akiva Eger quotes from this. He did have these manuscripts, and today it's printed. I can read to you from the original. In Likutim, collected uh, rulings, in number 43, it says, and I quote, Omar Lonu Mahari Segel, Rabbi Yaakov Segel, known as Maharil or Yaakov of Mulin, one of the greatest Germanic rabbis living in the 13th century, in the 14th century, pardon me. He said, All of the remedies and all of the various incantations found throughout the Talmud, it's proscribed, it's prohibited from using them. Why? Because we don't know the true meaning of, the, of those words. Much of it was written in veiled terminology. 
Much of it was written in euphemism, and the way we translate certain things is not necessarily accurate. It's very precise. And because we don't know the precise meaning of these things, when people will try and then fail, yilagu v'yilaglagu, they will mock and scoff al And he says, therefore, they should not be done with the exception of a particular piece of advice which is found in Masechet Shabbat about somebody who gets a bone stuck in his throat, that uh, this is the kind of thing that, that uh, you could follow. He says, because Allah hashazeh, bringing a similar bone and knocking on his head, this is badakum nusa, this has been actually scientifically proven, it's proven and tried, so this is something that you can do. I might add to you that in the 14th century, it was considered proven and tried. We have no evidence of this in the 21st century. So, it seems pretty clear that in the Talmud, they were aware of certain things, and as the Ran and the Rashba explained, these were natural remedies, and this is was science of the day, which is actually observable. However, we're told that we're not able to do this today. In the time of the Gaonim, Rav Shudar Gaon clearly rules it out. Rabbi Avram and Rambam says anything we cannot test, anything where they didn't show us the give and take or how they came to their conclusion is of no value to us. And the Maharil is saying it's prohibited from trying to use these remedies. So any of you out there who get all excited and say, okay, here we go, open the Talmud, solve the pandemic, I'm afraid not. And the reasons that we've heard so far, we've heard from Maharil about not understanding what they mean. And we also have heard alluded in the Yamsho Shlomo that we have a situation where we might not see them effective because of change in variables. Change in variables. Where does this come from, this business of change in variables? So let me take you now to the Baleatesvis. I'll begin with a statement which was made in the Talmud. This is a statement which is not really about healing, and that's why I, I'm only bringing this later, because I brought you earlier sources which deal directly with remedies and healing. This is a statement in the Talmud that deals with nutrition, with healthy eating. And yet, here you will see the business, the notion of shifting nature or metabolisms changing. The Gemara says in Mesechet Moed Katan, on page 11, the Gemara says, Omar Rav Rav taught, Omar Li Ada, the name of a particular fellow whose name was Ada. He was Tsayoda. He was a trapper of fish. So, an, an expert fisher. He said, Kavra, a fish, Samoch Mali, is best to eat it just before it starts to stink. So let the fish slowly you know, get into, shouldn't be so fresh anymore. And just before it goes bad, that's the best time to eat the fish. It means wait a while. Don't eat it immediately. And only later is it a good idea to, to consume the fish. That's the best time to eat the fish. Then the Gemara goes on to say, Rav. Rav said also, Amarli, Adatsaida, the same trapper or fisher said to me, Kavra, the fish, Tavaya Ba'achua. It's best to, to grill it with his brother. Who's the brother of the fish? <laughs> Who's the kindred soul of the fish? He means here the sea salt. So if it's not freshwater fish, but if it's salt, if it's a fish that comes from the ocean, we would be best to grill this with salt that comes from the ocean. And then he says, 
asuke ba'avur, then you should soak it in his father. Okay, obviously a euphemism. What's the father of the fish? That's the cold ocean water. So if it's caught from, from the ocean, soak it, allow it to soak, the dead fish to soak in salt water, in ocean water. And then afterwards, you should salt it with salt that's been extrapolated from the sea or, or evaporated from this evaporating water, which leaves the salt behind. And then you should, you should grill it with its brother. So soak it in its father, the water, the, the sea water, grill it with the sea salt, and then mechli bivrei, then you should eat it with his son, the offspring of the fish. So this is a euphemism for the brine of the fish. And then ashte alu avur, go back to his father and drink water copiously. There you go. Advice and to be an expert fish eater. How to best eat the fish, how to best cook the fish, and how to best obtain nutrition from the fish. Does this work today? So the Teisvis says something very interesting. The Teisvis in Dafir Aleph says, it's only one Teisvis on that page, Dafir Aleph Amir Aleph, which is the end of that particular chapter of the Talmud. The Teisvis says that Samoch, uh, you should eat it just before it goes bad. So the Teisvis says, well, that was then. But Bizman Hazer, in today's day and age, he says, We actually believe it's highly unhealthy to eat bad fish. So it would be dangerous to eat fish that is about to rot. And it's not a good idea to follow his advice. And Gam, the business of drinking water after eating the fish, the Omar, the Mali, that that was, that we said in the next piece of Gemara that it's effective, that's in the time of the Gemara. However, now, it's not a good idea to drink lots of water after eating fish. And the Teisvah says, Shema Nishtano. Things have shifted. Nishtano doesn't say what. The Shittu Mikubetzes adds the words, Nishtanu Hativim. Nature or metabolisms have shifted. And here the Teisvah says something compelling, that this idea of shifting and changing nature and metabolism this is along the lines of the remedies in the Talmud. They're no good today. They're no good today. So we have a source in the Tosfos for a change of nature and metabolism. Now remember we talked about geography. And now the Tosfos goes on and he says, And there are others who say, or he says, Oy Shema, pardon me, not as the Bovel. The rivers of Babylon are different. But we're talking about ocean. To the ocean of Babylon. There are no rivers, there are no ocean of Babylon. Now he says, maybe the rivers. And he says, V'yesh, Mepharshim, there are those who say, the Kavra lavuchal dogimaisi. Kavra was a spurting kind of fish. It's not all fish. And we know this because there's a Gemara that tells us that there's a name of a very odd, exotic fish called a Kavra. And its tongue can taste like certain things which we're not permitted to eat. And he says, the tongue of the fish tongues we eat today don't taste like anything special. And nobody likes fish tongues today. So therefore, he says, the kavra is not even fish. It's a unique kind of kosher sea creature. And we don't even know what that is today. 
So there you have it. This Tosfos alludes to all the three things that we heard about. Maril told us, Ein adam likaram. We have advice about eating fish. We don't know what the advice is. We heard in the Yamshel Shlomo that maybe our natures have changed. There you have it in the Tosfos. The nature, Shem Furthermore, the notion we heard of a shift in geography, the Amshel Shlomo mentions, the Teisvis mentions that too. So we have then three reasons why the remedies of the Talmud will not be effective today and why we would say that we can't utilize that information. Now, why did Ramavram and Rambam say, if you don't have the rationale or proof, don't accept it? Not because he didn't accept the words of our sages, because he says we don't know how to evaluate what our sages said. Our sages were talking about a very specific thing. And above Rome says, because we don't know what they were talking about, because our sages did not give us the, the, the information that led them to their conclusions, we have no way of saying, okay, if that was the information, let us check the variables. If the sages had given us the entire exercise, the experiment, how they came to that conclusion, so then we simply put all those facts and variables together, and number one, we'll see the variables are different. Number two, we'll see if we reach the same conclusion. And if we don't, something was different in the mix. One of those variables is either different because it's not the same variable, we're not identifying it properly, or because the geography has changed, or because nature has changed, the metabolisms have changed. And because we don't have the ability to do that, we cannot simply accept it. This idea is actually rooted in the Teisvis. Now, very interestingly, the Teisvis, which talks about human health and wellness, is also linked, we find something similar with regard to the health of animals. And this, the uh, uh, animal medicine or veterinarians are not intrinsically different than medical doctors who deal with human beings. Any of the ailments in animals are also ailments in animals uh, in people and vice versa. So we have another example of this, not in the framework of human nature metabolism, but in the metabolism or nature of the animal world and how things have shifted. We have a Gemara Meseches Avedizara where the Gemara says, makes a statement. It says that a para, that a cow, that is pchusa, that is younger than shalosh shanim, a cow that is less, less than, than, than three years, or, um, or a chamor, or a donkey, that's less than three years. So there is not possible for that animal to conceive and produce offspring. So the Teisva says, V'yeshla Tamaya. This statement found on the 24th page of Mesechet, Mo'avodazara, in the Perikei Mamidin, is actually a wonder to us. He says, this is astonishing. The Hamaisen B'chol we here in France see every day. The Parabashtei Shonim, you led us. The cows, age two, are having offspring. And the Teisvis answers, Things have shifted. Nature has changed the way it once was. And he says, this is similar to what we find in a discussion in the Gemara in Mesechet Chulin about the shape and the, and the actual contours of an animal's lungs. So he says, just as the Gemara there says things have shifted and changed, so it is also that the nature of the animals have changed. So the Gemara makes a statement, a statement within the science of, of veterinary science, that an animal doesn't give birth. And the Gemara rules a halacha based on this. That it's a question of whether or not it is calved or it hasn't calved, whether it goes to a cone, it doesn't go to a cone. And the Gemara says, if, if it's three years, 
For sure the offspring go to the Kohen. We're certain that it hasn't calved for it. Deso says, what do you mean? We, we see animals having offspring before this age. And the Tesis' response is, well, things clearly have changed. So we see here, this is a ruling based on veterinary science. And the Tesis is telling us that things have changed. It doesn't talk about geography. doesn't talk about uh, anything other than things having changed, in, as meaning nature has changed. Now, insofar as that Gemara is concerned, I, I, uh, the Gemara in Mesechet Chulun, which is referenced, I just want to quickly share with you, the Gemara there speaks about the lungs. And the lungs of an animal, there's a rule in the laws of Trefas that an animal that has something additional, like an unhealthy growth, or something which an animal is not supposed to have, or if it's missing something that animal is supposed to have, the assumption will be that this animal is not healthy and would not have been able to continue living, would have died as a result because it's, the plumbing's messed up. So the Gemara describes the contours of the lung. And the contours of the lung are described very, very specifically with having ridges or specific uh, like leaves with two on one side, three on the other, and till today this is how we check the lungs, the lungs of the animal. I was in the slaughterhouse as a, as a young man learning from my ordination and I actually handled lungs, blew up lungs, checked lungs. I know exactly what this is talking about. And there's something called a varda. It's called a rose. It's, it's like an extra growth. Like a, uh, which the question is, is it considered a third growth? Is it not considered a third growth? And the Gemara has a whole discussion about this and gives you a clear ruling. And the Teisvis on page 47 says, uh, we're not sure what to say about this because we see animals today that are coming out, we check the lungs, and it's not what the Gemara says. So the Teisvis says, We cannot bring any kind of proof to question the Gemara, because our animals are different. In other words, our animals have changed, and as the Shitu Mikubetzas explains on the very same commentary, he uses the words, It's not a question of metabolism. It's a question of nature. So when we talk about evolution, we don't believe in random evolution, but yes, I mean, there's some evolution is possible. There's evolution within, within Drosophilus that's actually documented. We have seen even evolution within animals. A slight shift. The fruits and vegetables might not be identical with fruits and vegetables as they were centuries ago. Animals, clearly, according to the Teisvis, are not the same. The bodies grow differently. The tissue re reacts and grows differently. Here we don't have any mention of, of geography. We don't have mention of metabolism. We have mention of nature. Now, if the animal's nature changes, it's only logical that people's nature would change as well. And so from all of these different sources, it's very clear that we have this Torah idea of there's nature, there is marvelous propensities and properties that God encoded into nature. Some of this is documented in the Talmud, but the documentation won't work for us today. And those are due to nature changing, the world generally changing, geography changing, metabolism changing, a variety of explanations as to how things are different. This idea is also expressed in halachic terminology. I can find the Sefer I see. The Trumas Hadeshan. So the Trumas Hadeshan, which is um, a very, very important volume of, of Halacha, it's, it's a Shail Sechuvis. It's written in the form of responsa. It was authored by 
a great 14th, late 14th, early 15th century sage, whose name was Rabbeinu Yisrael Iserlin, not to be confused with the Ramah, Rabbeinu Yisrael Moshe Iserlis. However, I have to tell you that the Talmudist and Halachist named Yisrael Iserlin, who wrote the Trumas Hadeshan, was a primary source for Rabbeinu Moshe Iserlis's mapa or tablecloth on the Shulchan Aruch. So this is just the generation before the Ramah, and much of what he writes here is considered to be the solid footing in the foundation of Ashkenazic psak, of halachic ruling. And he talks about this idea of animals having changed. It's, it's found in Tshuva 271. And he says about another question. It's not about the lungs. It's about a different question, a different issue. And he says, he words this differently than the Tosfos. He says, their animals, not our animals are different, their animals were different. And he says, we find this in the Tosfos with regard to animals giving birth and not giving birth. And he says that we can, based on this Tosfos, rule halachically today that the behemoth shalonu yeshlechalkam behemoth shalahem. That our animals and their animals not the same animals. Things have changed. And he says, Omnami says, however, We cannot rely, though, on our investigation today to permit things which the Talmud openly suggests are prohibited and prescribed. We cannot simply say with broad strokes, Okay, Nishtanab is my name, everything's different. And he says, Gam and he apparently refers now to Reb Shudagorin's letter, that is only to say, he says, even the things which the Gaonim talked about are not necessarily going to be applicable for today. So even Rabbeinu, um, Yisrael here alludes to changes not only from antiquity, not only from ancient times or Talmudic times, he even alludes to changes that are five or six centuries earlier than him. He says the age of the Gaonim, and he is here in the 15th century now, 14th, uh, 14th century, 15th century, he's saying things may have changed from the 9th, 8th and 9th century. And he says we cannot rely on our information to override things they proscribed, but at the same time, we cannot simply accept things based on the fact that they were accepted or certain realities were at play. So it puts us in a very interesting place. So essentially, we necessarily have to say that things have changed, but because we don't know precisely what changed, we cannot override the things they proscribed. So we're going to prohibit things which they prohibited, similar to what the Yam Shlomo said, things which I think might be dangerous. It's a good idea to follow that advice unless we would know with certainty and we have no way of knowing with certainty. But he says, there, he does include in the, in the equation this notion that things may well have shifted. The words of the Trumas Adeshan are echoed in Shulchan Aruch a generation later in chapter number 156 of the laws of... Leverite marriages, the Ramah in the Chelech Ha'ev and Ezra of Shulchan Aruch says that over there the, we have this notion that a child cannot be born and survive in the ninth month. 
And Ramah says that in our time, we're talking our 16th century, the Posek of Ashkenazic Jewry says that even if, an, if a baby has been born and it's only one day into the ninth month from conception, that it is a Vlad Kaima, that it is a baby who could survive. And even though the Gemara says that you led this latest, any this that somebody who would uh, that was born in the ninth month would not be born in the last ninth month is, is, is concluded, which seems to fly in the face of what we see today. Says Kfar Rabim The Talmud makes a statement. However, our reality contradicts this. We must, we are forced to say, not the Talmud is wrong, things have changed. Things have changed. The Ramad does not speak about specifics. He doesn't tell you if the change is geographic. He doesn't tell you if the change is metabolistic. He doesn't tell you if the change is climate-related. He doesn't tell you if the notion of the world has changed. So even in that geography and even in that climate, things would be different. He says there are so many variables. And we know today that scientifically, the slightest shift in a variable can bring about literally seismic changes over time. So he says variables have changed. Things have changed. So whenever you're talking about nature or metabolism, whenever you're talking about the reaction, the chemical reaction of things which are very, very sophisticated and very precise, because medicine's always like that, tiny little minute amounts that can induce these kind of changes. So whenever you're talking about something like that, you gotta be very careful. And we don't know what the shifts might be. The Kesef Mishnah echoes the sentiment in his commentary on the Rambam, and we'll deal with this in great uh, length, Amir Hashem. But he says in the fourth chapter of Hilchas Deus, which we're going to talk about, we're going to have lots to say about this chapter. He says, with regard to what the Rambam says about bloodletting, about the Rambam has advice for bloodletting, and it contradicts the advice which is found in the Gemara. He says, This is not a question, because Rafuas van Hages of Malchus Bavel, the things that worked in Babylon were different in the times of the sages of the Talmud. Babylon is one kind of place. Rambam is living in Egypt, a different kind of place. And therefore, we cannot necessarily assume that what is healthy in one place is healthy in another place. And he says, he leans on the Gemara that we talked about, now, the Kesef Mishnah never conversed with the Tosafis, but he says, you look in that Gemara, and you see that there's the business of drinking water after eating the fish, which is said to be very healthy. And he said, it's not the case today. And clearly, something has shifted. So he says, this is, and he says, this is the case also, the difference between there and between other lands, from the Derech and therefore the Kesef Mishnah says, we cannot bring any proof from this Things have changed and shifted. Very interestingly, in the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, in the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, in the ends of the laws of Mayim Achroinim, we have this fascinating uh, halacha about, in the end of Simen Kuf, Ayin Vav, chapter 179, it says over there about eating salt after consuming, finishing your meal, as being something which is healthy and something which prevents illness. And Al-Tarebbe quotes these halachas. 
And then he says, Va'achshav, but now in the 18th century, Le'nogu klal b'achilas melech. Because he goes to the details of how you eat salt, when it's good, when it's not good. He says, we don't do any of this now. Ve'ein nizoyken, nobody is harmed. Me'pnei she'neshtanu hativim. Because nature has changed. Nature has changed. Because nature has changed, we can no longer use this advice. Very interestingly, we have a fascinating comment which is found in the Ramah, which the Alter Rebbe seems to lean on. And in this comment, the, um, the, the, pardon me, the Magen Avram says, when it's talking about various things which could be considered dangerous in today's day and age, and we have the Magen Avram, Abeno Avram Gombiner, who is one of the foremost commentaries on the Eurachaim section of Shulchan Aruch, one of the uh, uniquest things of Rabbi Avram Abel Gombiner is that he included in his halachic works also Lurianic Kabbalah. And there's a lot of Kabbalah that's mixed into it. He lives in Europe, in Poland. He lives in the 17th century. And here he says, It's very possible that although Shulchan Aruch says these things are dangerous, it's very possible there's not a danger. The Chazinon, for we see, and I quote, Several things that the Gemara talks about as being dangerous. So you already see a change in the 17th century. The Yamsha Shlomo said, stay away, dangerous. Magnavaram says, no, no. Nishtana Tivis, nature has changed. Nature has changed. Because nature has changed, he says. So... And then, and then, then ge- these geographic changes, and as such, everything has changed. There's a very interesting comment that's found in the responsa of the Chavas Yoyer. The Chavas Yoyer, Rabbeinu Yoyer Chaim. His name wasn't originally Yoyer, his name was uh, Chaim Bacharach, but then they added the name Yoyer when he was a boy. This is customary to add sometimes name to children who would... There is a Chavas Yoyer somewhere here. There's a Chavas Yor somewhere here. Oh, here it is. Chavas Yor, 17th century sage, very, very important responsa. In his responsa number 434, he says, he asks a question, he says, well, if people have gotten weaker, doesn't that mean that the medication should be even more effective? And he says, no, actually. And he says something which is remarkably insightful. He says, quoting a great Talmudic scholar who's a physician in his time, he says, when you have shifts of changes in variables, everything can shift. He says, if people's consistencies became weaker, if people's metabolisms became weaker, then it also makes sense to say that the natural propensities of herbs or of animal derivatives have also changed and shifted. And he says, whenever you have variable shifting, you never know what the outcome is. These are very minute quantities, and the smallest shift in variables can produce a totally different outcome. And therefore, he says, not only does it mean that the nature has changed, people's metabolism, people's nature of bodies have changed, he says, the same is true with the herbs have changed. And the same is true with the various drugs, or the, 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 the pharmacology has changed. Everything has changed today. And therefore, he says, it would not be possible for us to utilize the Talmudic remedies in any way, shape, or form. So what is the answer to the question? Does the Talmud talk about remedies? Yes, it does. Do we believe them to be true? 
We do. Can they work today? Definitely not. Why not if they're true? The upshot is that geography has shifted, the world has changed, metabolism has changed, people's nature and the nature of the natural products has shifted and is no longer the same. And as such, as the Rambam son told us, unless we know exactly how they came to the conclusions, we may not use this in today's day and age. And I will leave you with this. So why was it included in Torah? Isn't Torah eternal? Isn't Torah everlasting? So this question will be dealt with in part two. How does that square with the eternity of Torah? And in part three of our class, we're going to take a careful look at the Rambam, who incorporates some of this information in halachic context. And that is most problematic, it seems, of all. And our third class will be Ezrat Hashem, be focused exclusively in understanding the notion that the Rambam chose to include all of this in the framework of halacha, which of course will create for a, a much bigger challenge and problem. Thank you very much for joining me for this. I hope that you found this fascinating and interesting. I think it gives you a, a solid basis and understanding. You see, I didn't make any of this up. It's all written in the holy books. There's much, much more. I selected that which I thought would be most poignant and most meaningful. Once again, I'm dedicating all of the Torah study, the many, many hours that I spent preparing and the time that we spent sharing all this together for the elevation of the Neshamas of Sophie and Albert, of Sarah Bas Yisrael and Avram, Yonah and Noach HaKohen. May their memories be a blessing. May they be a good to better for their families. And may the family know of only good health and of only happiness. Thanks for joining. To be continued.